0: Hey everybody, I just wanted to make a quick announcement before we jump into today's episode. We will be taking a short break after episode 14 because episode 14 will wrap up our second season. We're gearing up for an all-new season, so be on the lookout for updates on when season three will be out, and in the meantime, we will also be dropping some mini your way. So be sure to check those out. And we also just wanted to take the time to say thank you so much for listening to the show. We truly love each and every every one of our fans, and we can't wait to bring you even more amazing stories. Just a warning, this episode may contain language or topics that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: someone was living in your walls in your house
0: oh that's a very different type of question um I probably would not feel too great about that no not I, a normal super, thing no I think I'd be super creeped out about that you know get the authorities involved <laughs> It's not. that's not a normal thing to have somebody living like in the walls of your house So,
1: if you heard knocking from the walls or if you heard weird noises when you were sleeping, what would you think was happening?
0: I mean, I'd probably feel like the house was haunted and I'd get the hell out as soon as possible. Okay. So then you wouldn't call the cops? I would would probably call the cops after I got out of the house. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, you you would think it's supernatural. Well, I mean, you don't know, right? Like, I mean, my thing is this, right? Like, I'm totally into, like, investigating horror situations and, like, scary situations, right? Like, like haunted houses and those kinds of things. But, like, knocking from inside the walls is not, like, a normal thing. I would probably exit my home and
1: call the cops. Yeah, well, that happened in a small town in Massachusetts, like a couple decades ago. So this is the case of Danny Laplant. There were two teenage girls who were sisters in Townsend, Massachusetts. They started hearing things in their walls. One day, they decided to do a seance in order to speak with their dead mother. And the seance worked.
0: What do you mean it worked?
1: So they heard knocking from the walls. When they would talk, yeah. When they would call out for their mom.
0: That's really creepy.
1: Isn't it? And then they would see things moving from one place to another. Also, like furniture mean? moved.
0: Oh, like it moved like when they left the room, it was moved and they came back in. It was a different like in a different spot.
1: Yeah, in a different spot. Um Maybe the next day or something. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And one day, apparently, items were just, like, laid on a dining table. And then the next day, they were on the floor.
0: What? Yeah. So, obviously, like, Danny LaPlant, you know, like, did that, right? He... So he was in the house, in the walls? Yeah,
1: he was in the walls. He would come out of the walls to do whatever he needed to do. And then he would go back into the walls, do the knocking, which became regular. And they were just, the girls were just convinced that it was their dead mom talking to them in some way.
0: Jeez. So, (laughs) I mean, this sounds like... I don't know, like, it sounds so unreal for that to actually happen. Like, that doesn't sound real, but it is, right? Sounds like a horror movie, right? It really
1: is like a horror movie.
0: It's like a real-life horror movie. (laughs) I mean, a lot of horror movies, right, and things like that are based off of, like, urban legends and, like, these sort of, like, stories with cult followings. It reminds me of the what? What is it? The boy, which is the doll that would like move right and like be in different places throughout the house. And actually, it is pretty similar. In the end, you find out like it's the son, and he does live in the walls of the house. Oh my god, this is getting worse. <laughs> and and you
1: ask me why I don't watch horror movies because I mean- they become a reality sometimes.
0: Well, I am a horror fanatic, so. She but is, guys. It's <laughs> it's really interesting. I mean, all of this is really crazy. You know, you can take these stories and turn them into something else, right? You can turn them into, like, these stories that are larger than life where, you know, yeah, like, like they become, like, the stuff of legend, right? So it's like you take, like, certain facts, like, even with the Danny LaPlante case, right? there's certain facts that, like, evolved into something else, right? That was a thing with this case, right? Yeah. I I mean, it
1: was incredible how when we were just looking at different articles of the case, the names of the girls were different. The names of the girl's dad was different. One thing that seemed to be constant was actually Danny LaPlante's name.
0: (laughs) I think there was even some... Some information where it's you know in one place or another where it it said um, that like he dressed up like the mother and stuff like that. But then if you look somewhere else, like reading a a completely different article, it doesn't even mention that. Yeah, yeah, that was a little dramatic. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like you know, there's drama involved, right? Because it's such a crazy case to begin with. And so that that kind of brings us to. What today's episode is about. There are a dozen sides to every story, and then there's the truth. Some true crime cases can grow to a cult status and turn into the stuff of legends. Is what we hear always the truth? True crime novelist Joe Turner has been researching the Danny LaPlante case for years. After writing an article in the case, those connected to it in different ways came forward and revealed to him what he got right what he got wrong, and what he missed entirely.
1: Thanks, Joe, for being on the podcast today.
2: No problem. Thank you for having me.
1: So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background, uh, why you chose true crime?
2: Ah, yeah, well, well, I'm a British... True crime author. Um, I fell into the genre probably uh, about 15 years ago now. It just all started very slowly. I wrote some articles for a couple of websites, like non-paid gigs. And then I gradually just kind of moved through the ranks and I started working for a few different websites, a few different podcasts. I wrote for some newspapers. And then over the like five years or so, I managed to turn it into a a relatively um, lucrative career, I guess. Uh, And ever since then, I've stayed in the genre and yeah, still trying to, trying to get my head around you all.
1: What is it about true crime that excites you?
2: Ah, it's a good question. Um,
1: it's a hard question, right?
2: Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's a, there's the whole mystery aspect of it. Like, you know, I hate unanswered questions and I love trying to dig deep enough to to find an answer that no one else has ever gotten. There's that kind of aspect to it. And it's because I grew up with like horror movies and stuff like that, like Silence of the Lambs and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that kind of affected affected my love for it. I don't think there's any one reason why I'm attracted to it. It's just there's some invisible connection in your head that I can't, I can't quite manage to to vocalise to verbalise. But I think it's the whole the whole mystery thing because, like, I'm mostly attracted to cases where there's either not an answer or the answer is not fully realised, such as, as LaPlante. Plant. Because so, I'm sick of hearing about like Ted Bundy and John Gacy and Richard Ramirez and all that stuff. Like, that. Oh, if, if I never hear their names again, I'll be perfectly happy. So, I'm more interested in the, the relatively obscure ones where there's details to be unearthed by amateur researchers like myself.
0: Yeah. I mean, LaPlante's case really is obscure. And mm-hmm. I know that you've done a ton of research into it. If you could just give us like an overview of the LaPlante
2: case, it's a very strange case because. It's not like it's weird because usually in true crime, part of the story that gets the most attention is the murders, the murder aspect of it. But with Laplante, the focus is on something he did before his murders, which is almost unheard of completely in, in the realm of true crime. Really. So he was um, he was born in uh, 1970. He had he had a kind of violent upbringing. He didn't have a very good childhood, and then by his teenage years, he was like a, he was like a delinquent. He started fires, he burgled or people's homes, and then. He became obsessed with this local girl in his town, the town of Townsend, Massachusetts. And he became obsessed with this girl named Tina. And he, he started dating Tina for a short while. And then she dumped him and he didn't take it very well. So Tina would carry on living her life. Uh, and around her home, she would notice strange things happening. She, there'd be Lisa left out that she didn't leave. There'd be noises in the middle of the night. And by you know, after sort of six, eight months of this with these weird occurrences, she said, you know, there's something weird going on in our house. This is not normal. So they called the police. They checked the uh, every corner of the house and couldn't find anyone in there. Police left. The sort of hauntings continue. Hauntings in inverted air quotes. Air quotes. The police came back a few days later and they did find a young boy hiding inside her basement. Uh, that boy was a kid named Daniel Laplante, and he was uh, he'd been living in this house without the residents knowing for nearly a year so obviously it was a a very serious crime so they sent him to a a psychiatric juvenile psychiatric ward for nine months and then when he came out within a couple of months he'd gone back to his old ways he hadn't been you know um, rehabilitated at all and then he went on to murder a local family a pregnant woman and her two children and then they were he wasn't very he wasn't a very skilled murderer so they caught him very quickly Then he went to jail within a few days, and that's where he remains to this day. That's the cliff notes of the whole story. There's a lot more to it, but that's the the overview.
0: Um, So, I mean, you're in England, and this case takes place in towns in Massachusetts. Why this case? What got you interested in this specific case?
2: Oh, it was kind of an accident how I felt into I mean, I remember first hearing about the case like 20 years ago now, back when I was a teenager. Remember, he there wasn't much details about it, there still aren't many details about the case today, and there was even less about 20 years ago. And I remember just reading a few lines about it, and it always stuck in the back of my head. Like, I've got a, a very strange memory, and it just always stayed with me. Um, and then a few years ago, I was working for a website. And I decided to cover this case because it was kind of obscure, kind of weird. So I thought, oh yeah, that'll be uh, that'll be quite interesting to to cover in depth. So I got all the resources I could from online resources, and there weren't many. And I put together sort of a comprehensive list of the plan's live from start to finish, and I put it out there. And then I thought nothing of it. A couple of weeks later, I was contacted by uh, the officer who harassed, arrested Danny. He'd found the article, and he told me his side of the story. And then for the next like three months or so. I just kept getting message after message from people who knew Danny or grew up with Danny or they were his teachers or they owned the shops that he that Danny burgled or they were his some of his living victims or some of his family. And then I pieced this whole story together just by talking to these people. Like I had no intention of putting it into any kind of format. So I just talked to these people it, normally. Sort of became quite clear that what had been reported online was not anywhere near the, the reality. Like everyone I spoke to all thought that. Their part of the story was the one that had either been embellished or completely omitted. But it turned out that every aspect of the of the case had, had been, you know, had, had some kind of uh, effect like that. So I put it all together and then it was just completely different than what had been reported. So and I thought it was kind of my, my duty, I guess, to put the whole thing into a coherent format to clear up some of the because as you know the case is full of misconceptions and lies and people just exploiting it for their own you know their own views and stuff like that so i thought i'll put a coherent source out there that people can use to you know if they want to retell the story through their own mediums their podcasts or whatever then they can use my source to do it because it's straight from the victims themselves it's straight from people involved there's no embellishments no lies and that's pretty much how i fell into it and of course the, the case is interesting enough to for me to want to pursue it, you know, I mean, like I remember when I first heard about the case 20 odd years ago, and the, I heard about the him living in the walls, in air quotes again, and it kind of it became like my I don't want to say obsession, but I think everyone's got a kind of what I call a white whale, like Moby Dick. Everyone's got that one thing that they're going to keep searching for, no matter the obstacles that come in front of them. They'll always pursue this thing that they probably can't get. And for me, it was to find out how Dan pulled this off. Like, how how does someone live inside someone's house unknown for a year? And I sort of made it my, it was always in the back of my head, and I thought, I need to find out how he did this. So I think that's what kind of pushed me towards continuing and carrying on and discussing with these victims and stuff like that.
0: How did he, like, how was he really able to pull that off?
2: It was—it's um, very anticlimactic the um, the explanation. So it's a—that's another lesson that you chase this white whale for so long and then you find out it's not that great. So <laughs> he just walked in. <laughs> he just walked in the house. <laughs> so I was thinking there'd be some kind of contraption, like you know, trap, you know, pulleys and stuff yeah. like that, and how he dig underneath <laughs> the house and come up the other side. It was like, no, he just walked in. Jeez,
0: everybody keep your doors and windows locked. That's basically. Yep.
1: Wait, he just walked into the house, but then how did he get into the walls? I I clearly don't know anything Uh, about construction, but...
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this house, it was um, was a split-level home, so it's on three floors. You walk in the front door, you're on the middle level, and you go downstairs. And downstairs, they had this huge basement, and there was a door in the basement as well. So he had two points of entry if he wanted, so he could either go in the back door or go in the front door and then just go down to where he wanted to be. And then there was a little, wow. there was like a, a false wall up against one of the, up against one of the corners. And he just used to slip behind that false wall. So yeah, that, that's all he did. <laughs> he just walked in.
0: That's really creepy.
2: <laughs> very disappointing.
0: It is it is anticlimactic, but it, it's also yeah, still creepy. So. Yeah.
1: I think what's interesting and what's like dramatic and fascinating is that it actually happened. Maybe not in the method in which it happened is exciting, but... You know, the boy in the walls, and that's
2: you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know any... I think there's like a probably about a handful of cases of this ever happening in history. In most cases, it's like squatters living in people's attics and lofts yeah. and stuff, but actually living in the same area that the other people are as well. Mostly unheard of. There can't be any more than sort of 10 cases of it ever happening in in modern history. But then again, that's another thing that kind of draws people towards it and gets them fascinated, really.
1: He basically had a daily peep show.
2: Yeah, pretty much. He did have uh, holes in the walls as well oh, so that man. he could watch them during their most oh. intimate moments. And and the girl that, that was in there, she was, you know, I had to talk about 15 years in this way, but she was sexually active. So there was a, a very high chance that he watched her during the, uh, these acts of intimacy. But that's gross. Yeah.
1: And she was the one that she broke up with him?
2: Yeah, they went on two days. Okay. She she felt sorry for him basically, and then she just you know, ended things in a. She thought she'd seen the last of but he was still there, watching her all along. Gross. Uh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not nice.
0: So with this case, right, every time I look up information for it, for the most part, I see the same regurgitated information over and over again. And yeah. sometimes the facts change, right? I mean, it's hard to nail down the fact of this case if you just listen to you know a random podcast episode mm-hmm. or or you even look on whatever you know website that tries to yeah. collect all the facts and yeah. you hear things from you know he dressed up like the mother or he he dressed like a ninja you hear all kinds of crazy things yeah. and you know the names of people involved in the case are are, are different from each source you read and it makes it really hard to get accurate information. So that's the thing, right? Like for me, I can't find enough information about the case because yeah. there isn't enough information. Mm-hmm. And so how do you how does this happen where all the facts are misconstrued and, and and you don't know what's real?
2: Well, that's still a problem to this day. Like I've been researching the case for probably five years now, and I've still come across conflicting reports. How it started, I really don't know, because I've got newspapers from 1987, when his crimes were first reported. And it's kind of a a peculiarity of the case in that like, when he stalked these girls and lived in, uh, lived in their home, I should mention there's more than one girl that he stalked. There they were three sisters in this house. And that was in 1986. And everyone involved were all underage. They were, um, Danny was 15. Tina was fifteen, and the other girls were uh, fifteen and nine. So everyone involved was underage. so they couldn't report their real names in the newspaper because they were all minors. So basically nothing was reported at the time, it was all kept very, very hush, hush. Like it's weird because I recently spoke to Dan's sister, and she had no idea that Dan had done this. like she she knew nothing about it. Even to this day, she knew nothing about it, which is very, very strange, but it's it, Wait, like it wasn't reported at the time. So, what do
1: you mean she didn't know anything about it?
2: She knew Dan was a murderer, but she didn't know Dan was uh, had had stalked these girls in their house. She still didn't know to this day. I was the one that's, that told her about it,
0: that's which is wild. very weird.
2: Yeah, yeah. And she was a bit older than Dan. She was like, um, I think she was six, six, six years older than, her, than Dan. Um, and, and she moved out the house by the time Dan had done this. Okay. Um, but she was like, what the hell? I have no idea what you're talking about. So I was the one that had to tell her the winning stuff that her brother had done. So, but that just shows that um, when, when it happened at the time, it wasn't reported anywhere. It wasn't a big local news story. No one of the, the people involved really knew about it. And maybe like schoolyard rumours and stuff like that. So it wasn't until a year later when Dan committed murder that what had happened a year before was finally reported, if that makes sense. Like they would yeah. preface the stories by saying, "Oh, a year ago in nineteen eighty six, Dan also stalked this home," to kind of give a you know an intro to to make it kind of a more sensational news story, you know. So they say, "Oh, a year ago he stalked these girls, and now this year he's committed murder." Um, and that was the that was the time when it was first reported, and when people started learning about it outside of you know Dan's close friends and the people involved, stuff like that. So by that point, the kind of the facts had been a little bit jumbled. And I think they were in interviewing some of the officers that were there at the time and some of the officers, their memories, you know, you can distort events quite easily in the span of a year. And plus, you know, the, the local precinct officers will have talked, things will have evolved and mutated, information will have changed, and the journalists were getting their information from them. So it wasn't completely accurate information. And I think that's where the... The misinformation started because, like you say, there's reports of Dan being dressed as a ninja, dressed in a wedding dress, dressed as an Indian. Um, he he had face paint on, but he wasn't particularly dressed like anything, you know, no, no notable character. He just had face paint on and his hair geled. But That's really where it starts. And I think that's just continued to this day. I mean, those were the only real solid resources people could use. And I think more imaginative uh, writers and stuff like that have added their own flourishes. To the story over the years and now it's almost impossible to discern what's real and what's not but luckily i've managed to get it from the people involved and i trust that their their memories are accurate although again there are a few conflicting reports like the two officers that found down they both have conflicting stories about where he was found so it's like oh man which one which one do i believe so you just have to kind of go with the majority really and like if other people say Oh, he was found behind a washing machine or behind a fridge, and then that's what you have to go with. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of how I've managed to to separate the the truth from the fiction.
1: Why do you think there's so many inaccurate things about this case? It seems to change historically, but also within the different people that you've spoken to. So, just curious. I mean, what what's your theory?
2: It's a tough one because, but well, I think some of it comes down to the memory of the people involved. Like we're dealing—I hate to generalize—but we're dealing with seventy, eighty-year-old people here, so their memories of what happened thirty-five years ago are not going to be completely, com- completely coherent. But, but then again, nothing to do with age, really. I mean, because you know we've all got false memories. We think we remember stuff in detail from twenty years ago, but in, when we see pictures of it, it's not quite as what we remembered. So I think that's one of the reasons why there's so many inconsistencies but i think also it's because it's like if this was a fiction story you could have so many different angles to run with you could really embellish certain parts to make it really horrific and i think that's what a lot of people have done because i read articles from sort of like 15 years ago before true crime had become a real staple of the internet you know i mean you can before there were like millions of podcasts and millions of websites and blogs dedicated to true crime. And I think people thought that um, they could add a couple of details and no one would notice. Because, I mean, I'm guilty of that myself. I mean, I, I did it, I've done it a few times but back in the day. So I think that's what people did. They just kind of added their own little, little highlights to it just to make the story more fascinating to, to readers. And they hoped no one would ever check the sources to kind of <laughs> to put them together. So that's my personal theory. It could be wrong. It could just be, you know, a, a strange phenomenon because there's millions of true crime cases with complete misinformation in them as well. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think it's the lack of sources, people's memories and authors just wanting to kind of add a little bit of their own, their own flavor to it.
0: I mean, it's kind of like the stuff of like legend and folklore, right? It's, it's almost like this, it can become an urban legend in a way. Because, you know, when you don't know all of the facts, that's kind of how urban legends go, right? I mean, there's the real story and then over time things get added to it and switched around and molded in a certain way. And now it becomes something else, becomes larger than the true and real events that actually took place.
2: That, That could be what it is, yeah. I mean, people just wanted to blow the myth up and make it more legendary and, you know, like a folklore story. I mean, New England has no shortage of folklore stories, so <laughs> this is a uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it fits in really well with the whole uh, <laughs> witch culture and stuff like that, and the supernatural Lovecraftian world. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, Massachusetts in itself, there's so many different Absolutely. you know things in, in history that are that are like mm-hmm. that, and yeah, really, it could be anything that that could lead to the misinformation and, and the different stories that everybody has in this case, for sure.
2: Mm, very much so. Absolutely. But yeah, Massachusetts is a weird place. It's. Uh, well, I did some digging recently, and I found out that the town that Danny was from was originally cursed by a witch back in the 1700s. So it's, it's little things like that that kind of <laughs> make you think, hey, hang on, <laughs> I don't it's, believe in any of that stuff. It's, it's, it's just nice funny. To-
0: there's so many like little towns and little places that are like cursed by a witch in the 17 or
2: 1600s. It's, it's really funny. Yeah. I'm sure it never happened. It's just nice to, uh, think about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how do you find that kind of information? That's pretty interesting.
2: Yeah. You have to really dig into people's memories. I mean, I couldn't have done this without the help of The Thames and locals, I mean, they've been really nice to me. But 99% of them have been really nice to me. And they've told me all these kinds of little stories. And and the witch thing was one of them. But, yeah, it's all very niche folklore stuff that you wouldn't find just Googling it. You'd have to really dig into people's uh, consciousness to get to the. But that's been the fun part of of all all the research, really. It's been, like I say, it's great to uncover information that's just locked inside people's heads and get it out there. That's one of the reasons why I do it. So, yeah, that's been the best part.
1: So your yeah. sources are the people who have been directly involved with the case or have been affected by yeah. LaPlante?
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Everybody, yeah. There's be, oh, if, if I, could, I mean, there must be, I counted a few weeks ago, I were 86 people I interviewed that had all, all had connection to LaPlante in some way. Um, the most important ones were... The girls that he stalked—I mean, they've become pretty good friends of mine now. Well, two of them have. One of them doesn't like me for some reason. Oh. The officers that are right, yeah, yeah. I won't go into that. The officers that arrested Danny—they've been very open with me, very kind. I mean, they were the ones that started it all because they—they said they hadn't really talked about this case for thirty-five years since it happened because it's so horrific. I mean, you know, child murder—it is. It's horrible. It's tragic. So they've kept it kind of locked away for for three decades. But they were very nice enough to open up there. Their hearts and memories to me. Look, well, Danny's family have been good to me. Um, he's had a lot of childhood friends that have reached out to me. I've become good friends with a few of them myself. There were a lot of girls that he—I I hate to say—sexually assaulted because he just used to kind of grope them around town and stuff like that. He used to kind of at parks and parties. He kind of, you know, give them a little. I'd say because it's horrible, but yeah, we used to kind of violate them in ways they didn't want to be. They've all been very open about their trauma. There was one woman in particular that Danny did full-on rape, and she's been... Oh, I couldn't believe it because she just, she reached out to me out of the blue. because I was searching for this woman for, for years trying to try and find her. And because, again, I talked to the people and they all said, oh, you want to talk to this girl because she was, she was raped by Dan. And I tried to search for her for so long and I couldn't find her. And then one day I just got an email from her and she contacted me, which is really, really strange. And she was been great to me. She's shared her story and all its, its horrible details. And then there was even the other side of the case, which takes place after the murders. I've talked to some of the jurors, Danny's defending lawyer, trying to get hold of the district attorney at the time. Who else was there? Oh, there was a woman that Danny abducted and she's been very helpful to me as well. So yeah, there's, not a single component of the case that I haven't been able to cover from someone's personal recollection. So that's how it all came together so well, really.
0: I mean, that's amazing that you were able to get in touch with and get a hold of this many people in regards to this case.
2: It's been really weird, yeah. So yeah. A lot of them have come <laughs> to me as well, so I'm very grateful for that. Sometimes I'd wake up with a message in my inbox, and I was oh, yeah, who's to know? Okay, amazing. Yeah, it's been really good.
0: Why do you think they come to you?
2: Well, that's something that I've been wrapping my brain over, because at least six, maybe no, seven people involved in this case have all said to me, I haven't spoken about this for 35 years. I've never spoken to anyone about this. One of the girls that Danny stalked, there there were three of the girls. There were Tina, Kathy, and Karen. And Kathy's a really good friend of mine. And when she first reached out to me, she said, I haven't mentioned this to anyone, even my family. Nobody knows that this happened to me wow. 35 years ago. This has never left my lips in over three decades. So I was like, oh my God, okay. And that got me thinking, why now? Why have they already right. just come to me? And honestly, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's because, well, for one, it's become clear that Danny's never getting out of prison. He's gonna stay in there until the day. He is. And yeah. it's been up in the air for a few years because he's had a lot of parole hearings and he's been messing with the police. So yeah. there was always this fear that he might get lucky and maybe get out. But it's become clear it's not going to happen. So I think everyone's a little more reassured that they're safe from him. That makes sense. Yeah, uh, that's, that's one one part of it. Another reason is, I don't know. <laughs> I'm really trying to wrap up. I mean, have, you got, have you got any theories why some people might only talk about it after 35 years? It's weird because they've all started talking about it at the same time. They're all In the past year, these seven people have all been openly discussed about it. And people have tried to find them in the past and they've all said no. Like the, the girls involved, they've been contacted by uh, film companies, production companies to make films about it. And they've all said no. I said, no, I don't want to talk about it. But they've all talked to me and I don't understand why. Maybe it's my Britishness that they yeah. just can't resist. I <laughs> yeah. don't know.
0: It, yeah. it could be yeah. your approach to analysing yeah. the case, possibly. You, you do seem to have a, a big passion for trying to get the facts yeah. and, and get the story straight, and that might be what interests them. Yeah, yeah it could
2: be, I guess. Oh, it's, let's say, a few people have told me to get lost, and, I, and I, I don't blame them. I fully expected a lot more people to say, no, I'm not talking about this, go away. Uh, but yeah. the, the key elements of the case have all been very, very responsive to me. But you're right, maybe it could be the way I approach I mean, always approach them with respect, and I always... You know, I never hanged anyone. If they say no, then it's, it's no. One of the girls involved, she said she didn't want her name involved in my book, so I've had to kind of take her out. But yeah, I've got to respect these things because it's their trauma and it's not right. my not my place to kind of to try and profit off it. It's their their stories. So I understand that. So yeah, it, it could be that, but really I don't know. It just maybe everyone's just realised is the time to talk about it. If they don't talk about it now, maybe they never will. I mean, a lot of them are getting old, like in their fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties even. Um, so maybe it's that
0: yeah yeah sometimes they just need to actually express that and get it off of their chest they've been keeping it close to their their chest for so long that they just need to talk about it yeah it could
1: also help that you are i'm sure the people that have contacted them are also outsiders but you are across the pond you're from Mm. a different culture i wonder if that makes Mm. a difference but also the fact that you just don't seem to have an exploitative nature, and they yeah, reached out to true. you, right? I would be more suspicious if somebody was reaching out to me because I had something traumatic happen. I mean, yeah, have you I thought mean, about asking them? Asking who? Asking your sources. Maybe when the time is right. Why did you?
2: Oh, so you mean? Oh, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, that's the thing. I didn't want to say. Oh, I did think about asking a few of them. Say, why would you contacting me now? But I thought it might make them a little bit hesitant you know i thought they, they might you might get offended or something like they're spilling their heart to me and i'm saying oh, what are you talking to me for so i didn't want to go down that route but since i've become friends with quite a lot of them i probably will ask them at some point and say listen what's the deal why do i now uh, yeah so maybe i will
0: <laughs> yeah it's one of those things that like we we do like it helps like to make like our guests feel comfortable we always try to like approach yeah. it in a way that's like we're sensitive to you know whatever their trauma or whatever their experience has been and try not to exploit it and then we do definitely try and ask like why are you telling us your story hmm. and they're usually really receptive and, and they answer
2: truthfully and, and they're usually really No, oh, okay. that's good I mean I always think how I'd feel if somebody reached out to me if I'd been involved in trauma and I, I think I'd be a little bit upset I think I'd be kind of offended but I don't know. I'm not in that position, so I've never been in that position, so I don't know. I can't put myself in their shoes. But no, maybe I'll just have to have to ask them one day once I've, uh, once I've got the courage.
0: I mean, everybody's different, too. Some people may not want to actually... you got to feel it out.
2: Yeah, true. Yeah.
1: Speaking of your source sources slash friends, how do you feel about that relationship? How do you feel about the relationships you've forged with them? I imagine um, you have more of a duty to do justice?
2: Well, in all the cases, it's kind of gone past. We don't just talk about Dan and stuff like that anymore. We don't just talk about the crimes. We talk about everything we can. I've connected with everyone on a level outside of crime. So there's always that human element. And I think that's why they, one of the reasons they've been so responsive to me since I've become friends with them. Because I don't just message them when I need them and ask them about Oh, can you just tell me what happened in this? But talk like I talk to Kathy, one of the girls. Like every week, like she calls me all the time, and we we never really talk about what happened to her. We talk about everything else. So I just feel like it's a normal, friendly relationship, really. Like I talk to these people anyway, even if they weren't involved in in, in what happened. Um, but again, like you say, I do feel I have. A duty to tell their stories properly, and I would never want. like I'd hate them for me for them to read my book and see. Oh well, I never said that. Oh well, that's not true. Oh well, he's lied about that. He's embellished that. That would be the worst thing I think I could do, um, and that that would really really bother me. So yeah, you're right. I do feel I have a duty to tell it properly and to kind of show them respect because they've respected me by telling them telling them their story.
0: Speaking of your book, curious. I don't know if this is something that you you know want to go into all that much just because you know it's that's not true. out yet and so yeah. i'm just wondering how did you sort of structure your book do you start at the beginning of danny's sort of like criminal activities or yeah. do you do you just delve right into the case um the murders
2: So we go right back to the start right back to everything because i think that's what people really will really connect with that they um like i mean, i open with um a scene from uh, the the murder case because uh, i thought that's the thing that kind of grabs people and that's one of the reasons why most people will read it here by that part but i've also gone right back to the start from day one like i've talked about his mom and his dad and how they met even his grandparents and how they were like strictly devoutly religious and all this kind of stuff how they first met in maine and then moved to massachusetts and then right from danny's birth in the hospital to his well when he was talk about when he was a child so he was four then we got to his teenage years and then like it's probably not until the last third that we start talking about the the crimes really so yeah I've covered pretty much everything and kind of set the scene and then gone through it chronologically
0: I like that because it kind of gives you a real sense of his background his family background yeah. and everything that he went through himself too
2: um. Exactly you, you, I want to try and kind of I mean I'll try to kind of explain why he did what he did because I think there is Kind of weird reasons that some people will be able to to grasp. I mean, to the, to the rational person, they can't because child murder is you know it's it's beyond comprehension, uh, understandably. But I think if you kind of explain his violent upbringing and how he was raised in those conditions, it can help people understand why he became the monster that he did.
1: On that note, do you understand why he became the monster he did? And
2: yeah. no. Not really at all. I mean, <laughs> lots of people go through the same thing he does, Right, he did, and don't become anything like what he did. But Dan was kind of the perfect storm of circumstances, really. I mean, he had a very violent father. He had, he had no sort of male figure in his life. His mother was very doting and kind of believed him and naive. So he had these kind of two polarizing extremes. He had an abusive father and a mother that thought he was like a golden child. So he was kind of always pulled between these two two extremes. Um, And then when you combine it with the fact he was basically born to be a a monster, he was child onset type B, I believe is the psychological, psychiatric term, which means no amount of um, rehabilitation or intervention could have stopped him from becoming what he did. He was always going to have these violent sexual tendencies. And as a teenager, he became kind of addicted to pornography. So he had these all these psychological components pulling away at his his brain and his outlook on life and all that descended into uh, you know the fact he was compelled to to commit murder. So no, I don't understand it myself because I think even if you had these urges, you should know that you don't cross that line, you know, you don't cross the line into into rape, into uh abuse into murder and especially not into child murder i mean it's kind of weird because as a like if we look at dan like a serial killer you can kind of understand why he targeted a why he stalked a woman his age and why he murdered a woman that was a bit older than him because they were in his kind of sexual demographic but then when he goes to a an underage girl an underage boy he just becomes like what the hell why would you why would he even do this? said so, no, i ca- I can't really understand understand why he did what he did. Maybe a better psychiatrist than me could, but no, I don't.
0: I don't know if they would be able to <laughs> yeah, because it no, it so. seems like like you said, there's you have different like I mean, you know, yeah, a serial killer sort of has like a a type, right? They have like a generally yeah. like what they usually you know, their usual victims, but yeah, here you have children, you have a mother, you have, yeah, stalking. It's, yeah, it seems kind of random.
2: His victimology is not consistent at all. It was right. four completely different demographics. But, but I mean, the, the reason he murdered the children is because they were in his way. Right. But I think yeah, yeah I mean, you know what I'm going to say. It's, it's over the line. And he should have been more but then, and again, another factor is that he was 17 years old at the time. And of course, your brain is not fully developed. You don't really understand the consequences of the things you're going to do. I mean, some 17-year-olds might, but a lot of them wouldn't. So there's that factor as well to, to, to throw in there. So yeah, it was a whole tornado of, of different problems that, that caused him to do what he did.
0: Because we know that he had these problems intervention would not probably would not have worked right in terms of but was there any efforts to sort of intervene in his life when he's doing these terrible things making these really bad decisions
2: and harming no. people the only intervention he had was ha- after he was found uh, stalking the the bone girls he went to a psychiatric ward for nine months a juvenile sorry a juvenile detention for nine months um, and then his mom posted bail and from that point, it became a kind of a real battle between the, the juvenile system and the cops. Because I remember the, the cop that caught Danny, he told me that he took six mug shots of him when he was first taken into the cells, even though it was to take two, because he said he knew he'd be using those mug shots in the future again. So he could sort of instinctively tell Danny was going to be back there at some point. Uh, and he, that officer, Officer Tom Lane, he kind of pushed for Danny to be Trolled as an adult for the stalking that he did. This wasn't murder case. Certainly he did. Um, but he wasn't. He wasn't tried at all for anything. At all? But, yeah. No, well, because he committed murder when he came out, that kind of overruled what yeah, he did before. Yeah, true, yeah. Everything else just, just went by the wayside and he was only trolled for, for the murders. But these officers, they said, look, this kid is he's, he's bad news. He's been a, a deviant in the town for years and years. This is just the start of his reign of terror. And, of course... They, I hate to say they had no real evidence for it as such because, you know, he was a teenage delinquent, just like many other people in the town. I mean, yeah, he'd gone one step a bit too far and stole these girls, but didn't indicate to the courts that he could be a potential murderer, even though, you know, but then the cops, they've got like a, they can sense human nature, yeah. can't they? They've got, they can read people. Maybe the courts couldn't then more by the books and, you know, strict... So he became a kind of bone of contention between the, the courts and the cops because they were they really wanted to push Danny for harsher punishment and to ideally keep him locked up for life because they knew he would he would be uh, he would cause more trouble than he did. So yeah, it's a very it's still a kind of a sore of subject with some of the some of the people involved today. They still say, oh, they they'd have tried Danny as a, as an adult during the stalking, he wouldn't have done what he did. Uh, so, yeah, they kind of tried, but not to the extent they could. But it depends on your on your view. I mean, a lot of people would have done things differently. This court just happened to not do it that way. So I think maybe if it happened in another state, it would have been a different story. But we we don't know.
0: Obviously, you know, you've done a lot of work on, on the LaPlante case, and I'm sure there are things that interest you beyond that. So yeah. what
2: else are you up to? After the Lapland case, I'm doing a book on. Um, I do a lot of work with um, Japanese murderers and Asian murderers. And the one case I'm really getting involved in now is the case of a, a guy called Takahiro Shirayoshi. You ever heard of him? He was like a teenager who lured people into his apartment and then made them kill themselves. It was a really fascinating case in Japan. He's, he's just been he's just been given execution a death wow. sentence. So I'm looking into that because it's again it's like it's one really weird and there's so many questions to that, that he just brings up just by that little piece of information there he lured people and made them kill themselves
0: yeah i need to know more like um, that's immediately
1: Well, japan so has a interesting history of kind of having like group suicide like uh, going
0: into the forest uh, and and what is it that that like like yeah where people go to
1: yeah i don't know how but i mean that you're the case that you're working on joe is interesting
2: um yeah, seppuku, is cool. But yeah, a lot of lot of suicides in Japan. There's um it's the second highest suicide rate in the world after um, is it Hong Kong's the most or or Thailand? It's some other Asian place. But yeah, it's the second highest rate in the world because their working conditions are just so so harsh. And there's um there's a big emphasis on kind of collectivity and you, know, you need to fit in with the collective oh, wow. rather than individual. So people that don't identify with the collective group that are left on the outskirts, they kind of Get drawn towards a life of depression, anxiety, and then eventually suicide. That's why it's so, so common over there. But it's, it's unlike, I can't remember the other country that's the that's the, the highest rate. but the, the contrast is in the country where it's the highest, it's the living conditions and the the squalor, like the third world aspect of it. But in Japan, it's much different. It's the socioeconomic factors that drive people to suicide. Again, it's like kind of like a plant. There's not much information in the Western world about these strange cases that happen in the East. So, I like to kind of put them together so the, the West can learn all these horrific details as well.
0: Yeah, I love the strange cases. Those are, <laughs> I always love research and find like just the strangest things. What's
1: your uh, research process like? How does it differ from a journalist? And I wonder if that's also one reason why you're more approachable.
2: Mm. Uh, I, I've never thought about this question. My research process is to just kind of compile it all in a big, Word document and try and put their notes in the correct place so that when I look back at it, it's all in a chronological order. So that's the only approach that I've ever used is to just uh, record what people tell me, transcribe it somewhere, and then try and see if it matches with what other people have told me, you know, and then try and slot it into my master file of information and see if it fits and see if everything else is on board with it. Oh, yeah, I've I never thought about that before. I just dive right in and hope for the best, to be honest.
1: So you're I've kind of like your old there.
2: detective. Yeah, I guess I guess I am. I've never thought of it <laughs> like that. Dive right in and and let it sort itself out. I guess. Oh yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't think you you'd have one. I think you just kind of find people and interview and see where it goes from there. I guess I've never gone in with a kind of a game plan always just gone in and winged it like I've never had questions planned or anything like that mm-hmm. I'm just kind of like I talked to Dan's uh, sister for the first time last week and before I, I didn't even think about it before I dived in I just called her and thought I'll just wing it and see what comes out the other side and it came out pretty great so couldn't complain
0: sometimes that's the best like,
2: yeah maybe that's mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's the trick just dive in don't think about it don't think too much don't overthink things just get in and start talking <laughs> Just do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, just do it. Shut up and do it.
1: How do you think your experience with the case or your rapport with the sources would have changed if you were in the US? Is that something Uh, that you've thought about?
2: If I was in the US, I'd be tempted to visit them in person. Would that get a better result? I don't know. I mean, I've got a friend in Townsend who does that kind of thing for me. Like he goes and talks to people that I've, you know, become acquainted with to get the, to give the kind of personal touch. So I think that would be the major difference if I was over there. But like you say, that could be a, a negative because people might be more, maybe it's the fact that I'm different and alien, that people are willing to talk to me because it's kind of like, there's a, a barrier kind of thing. Like, they're not talking to their neighbour who's going to tell everyone else in the tent. They're talking to someone miles away who they've got no mutual acquaintances with. Uh, so maybe it would have been a detriment. I don't know. i have to think about that one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. What would you want to
1: ask him if you ever met him?
0: That's a good question. I think the first question should be I, would um, you want to meet him? <laughs> that
2: too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would. I, I know he'd lie to me because he tends to lie a lot. So, first of all, I'd say, I want to ask him why he did what he did. I don't think he told me the truth. Uh, although, then again, he did, like I talked to a guy that was in prison with Dan. And he said Dan was very open about what he did. And he just said, I did it because I liked it. So maybe, maybe i would talk about that with him. But, Really, I'd want to talk about his childhood and how he think it affected him. I'd really want to talk to him about his dad, because I think his dad is one of the reasons why he became what he did. So I'd really want to delve into that kind of that kind of life because I don't think he's ever really talked about it to anyone. So I'd first of all I'd try and zone in on that part of his life. And then I'd I'd want to ask him the the hows and whys of how he managed to stalk the, the, the sisters. Because again, I like I think I've got all the answers, but there might be something that I, I'm not not aware of. And then, they, then I would have to ask him, I'd say, why did you kill two two innocent children? So yeah, that's all I'd have to ask him. And then I don't think he'd tell me the truth. I think he'd just uh, come up with some lame excuse. But that's all I could think of asking him, really. i know everything else. <laughs>
0: You do. Yeah, I feel like if you can get him yeah. to trust you, maybe he can open up enough.
2: But I've tried to. I've emailed him loads of times. So I've, okay. I've, I've talked to him via proxy through uh, his mom and someone else in his prison, but I've never talked directly to him. He doesn't get many visitors and he's not really the social type, as you can imagine. And he's, he's, he's very depressed and stuff because he's he spent his entire adult life in jail. I mean, he's been there since he was like 18 and he's 49 now, I think this was fun I enjoyed it this was fun yeah this was fun thank you well, thank, thank you, you so much thank you for having me and uh, I can't wait to listen to the episode It's going to be out tomorrow uh.
1: oh. <laughs> yeah tomorrow we, we work quickly
2: <laughs> well thank you thank you thank you for thank you
1: time. we'd like to thank Joe Turner for being on the show today It was great talking to him about the Danny LaPlante case, learning the ins and the outs and how he leveraged relationships with people who have been affected by the case personally.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Bound by the Cloak. To learn more about Joe Turner, check out his website, joeturnerbooks.com. Look out for
1: Joe's book, The Boy in the Walls, coming soon. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. See you next time.